Hi, welcome to the, the final session of Fairy Tales Reimagined. My name's Thomas Caldwell. I'm a film critic and educational writer based here in Melbourne. Today's session is The Forbidden Room from Bluebeard to CSI. And the Bluebeard story, or as it is known in the original French, Le Barbe Bleu, is one of the fairy tales written and published by Charles Perrault in 1697. Like most literary versions of fairy tales, it was based around variations of pre-existing folk tales and possibly even real events. Bluebeard is an exotic, wealthy and yet feared figure with a habit of violently murdering his wives. In Perrault's story, Bluebeard's new wife has a seemingly happy life married to this strange man, but she is ultimately tormented by her curiosity to the point that she does the one thing she's not supposed to do, and that's to go into the forbidden room where she discovers the bodies of her husband's previous wives. The Italian myths know Bluebeard as Silvernose, and he's called the Lord of the Underworld in Greece. Some cultural historians have even suggested that Bluebeard is based on the actions of actual French noblemen, including wife murderer Kumar the Accursed and also child serial killer Gilles de Ray. However, like most larger-than-life fairy tale characters, Bluebeard is a construction of a collective fantasy who functions as, as both a warning about men with mysterious pasts and unknown origins and also a warning towards women from indulging in temptations, especially temptations that defy the order of their husbands. Popular culture variations on the Bluebeard myth continue to resonate today, especially in serial killer narratives. In terms of contemporary representations, we can possibly trace more overt references to the myth in 1940s films such as Fritz Lang's Secret Beyond the Door, Alfred Hitchcock's Notorious and George Kugel's Gaslight. Today our panel will be looking at crime fiction, television, comics and cinema to explore the various cultural anxieties that Bluebeard inspires. Rebecca Ann de Rosario in The Bloody Business of Fairy Tale will explore many of these contemporary representations. While in Death as Entertainment, Catherine Cole examines the metaphor of the forbidden room in terms of how audiences respond to murder narratives. That will then be followed by The Forbidden Room in Cinema Narratives by Terry Waddell, who will somewhat turn things around to look at cinematic variations of The Forbidden Room where, in, where it instead becomes a forbidden space for men. Now, following the presentations, we'll, uh, we'll further discuss the points that have been raised. The presentations will go for about 20 to 25 minutes each. And uh, we'll also be inviting questions from the audience to help us unravel the issues at the still-beating heart of the Bluebeard fairy tale. Rebecca Ann de Rosario discovered her academic interest in fairy tale narratives when she wrote an undergraduate paper analysing Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice as a Beauty and the Beast variant. Her postgraduate work at the University of Queensland and Monash University has seen her exploring musical theatre, animation and contemporary fairy tales. In her own words, I count myself fortunate to be in a position to spend days thinking, talking and writing about pig kings, other mothers with buttons for eyes, big bad wolves and red shoes. Today she will be looking at the history of the Bluebeard story and how it manifests in crime fiction, in contemporary comics and television. 
Please welcome Rebecca Ann de Rosario to present The Bloody Business of Fairy Tale. Fairy Tale is a bloody business. Today I'm covering a small span of its bloody trail or blood splatter. There's one thing you should know about fairy tale. It doesn't follow a linear path, leaving neat lines of breadcrumbs or dried peas or ash. If you want to study fairy tale, you can't construct timelines in order to plot the various alibis and misdemeanors of its storytellers. You have to follow its impacts, examine the splatter as tales drop from lips like diamonds or toads, or a launch towards a potentially limitless audience as a book or comic or film or television series. Because I'm not Dexter, I very unscientifically looked up Wikipedia, and the types of blood splatter used by the experts actually provides a viable analogy to how fairy tales spread, though one more grisly perhaps than Angela Carter's pot of soup or Tolkien's analogy to a pot of soup. Of course, fairy tale heroes frequently end up in the soup, so there's actually quite a bit of blood in there anyway. But there's basically three types of blood splatter. There are passive blood stains, where drops fall naturally with gravity upon a surface, and these are basically the tales that are told in nurseries and tavern rooms, oral tales and tales written down and passed between friends and family. There are projected blood stains. This is where drops are projected via a blow or other impact. These are the tales published, sent out into the world intentionally by author or collector. And there are transfer blood stains, when drops are spread from one surface to another. These are the tales that brush against each other, authors taking one bit of a story or bits of many tales and making a new story. But how do we interpret the blood splatter in the tales themselves? It's actually difficult to find a tale that doesn't have blood in it. Even Cinderella's slipper becomes soaked in the red stuff by the time the Grimms have had made over her stepsisters who cut their heels and toes to fit the shoe. Earlier Cinderella's, like Marie, Catherine, Dolnois, Finette, and Dron in the 17th century in France, had no hesitation in whacking off the head of a poor ogress. The bloodiest tales, however, feature the bloody chamber itself, a room with which the bodies of the murdered are concealed. Sometimes the blood is on the floor, congealed, and it mirrors the bodies hung on the walls. Sometimes there are tubs filled with blood. It's always gruesome. The most popular of such tales remains Bluebeard. For Bluebeard, blood and bodies are the evidence of a dark crime. Bluebeard is the unsettling serial killer of fairy tale, more frightening for the fact that he is human and no witch or giant or ogress. Bluebeard appears in print in Charles Perrault's collection Stories or Tales of Bygone Times in 1697, already suggesting its age. It begins with a rich man deemed ugly by virtue of his blue beard and hinges on a wife's disobedience. She seeks out the room in which he conceals the bodies of his murdered wives. Perrault attaches the moral. Curiosity is all very well in its way, but satisfied and you risk much remorse, examples of which can be seen every day. The feminine sex will deny it, of course, but the pleasure you wanted, once taken, is lost, and the knowledge you looked for is not worth the cost. Oddly, the you he seems to address is male, for he quips about the feminine sex, trying to be enlightened and amusing, but, to me at least today, failing miserably. 
To this gem, he adds another moral, affirming that Bluebeard must be an old tale, for today, and he's speaking of Paris under the Sun King, women rule the household. Again, kind of a bit of a cringe. There are no morals about domestic violence and the inadvisedness of killing one's wives. The crime actually becomes the disobedience or the curiosity, not all the chopped up bodies that are in his room. As the moral suggests, the tale becomes a conflicted message about the female sex. The attention is often shifted from the crime to the acts of the wife. The murders themselves are so graphic, pale compared to the thrill of the forbidden room and locked door, and even after the wife is discovered with the bloody key, Bluebeard's ready acquiescence to her delaying tactics make his initial declaration, you must die, madame, and immediately, unconvincing and less threatening since she's pretty easily able to draw the whole thing out till her brothers arrive to chop him up to pieces. This is where you begin to do a little bit of digging, and it didn't quite work there. Um, If Bluebeard is a tale of bygone times, where are the earlier versions? Perot's Bluebeard is the first in print, and he's principally a serial killer of wives. It becomes a marital matter, much like much fairy tale of the French ancient regime, in which women had to plot their way out of bad marriages and fertility problems. The Grimm's, our our famous favourite fairy tale purveyors, try saying that a few times, over a century later record record three like fairy tales, Bluebeard, Fitch's Bird and The Robber Bridegroom, Bluebeard in 1812 and the latter two in 1857. The later tales vary the scope and motivations for the murderous activities, but the central heroine is intended as victim, and this remains consistent. It's worth noting that the Grimm's often collected stories from printed collections and from others who were remembering the tales that they in turn had been told from written collections or from oral sources. These tales did not originate with the Grimm's, but had quite complex histories that remain elusive and impossible. There are hints of another older bygone tale, one that informs Bluebeard and Fitch's bird. Evidence for this tale's antiquity is oblique and lies in quotes of its distinctive verbal formulas in some of the greatest literature to come out of England in the 16th century. In Spencer's Fairy Queen, Bridomart, the female knight, encounters the inscriptions of be bold and be bold but not too bold as she enters the castle of a wicked sorcerer in order to rescue a young girl. And here you can see some of the motifs from Bluebeard itself. Around the same time, Shakespeare's Benedict in Much Ado About Nothing apparently references the other formula in the tale. Like the old tale, it is not so, nor twas it so, but indeed, God forbid it should be so. So what is this tale? It's not till the 19th century that it appears in print, the story of Mr. Fox. Mr. Fox is our earlier serial killer. Lady Mary is his nemesis. Edward Malone, in writing about Shakespeare in 1821, actually provides a commentary on Much Ado About Nothing, where he reveals the tale told by a great aunt. To quote, Once upon a time there was a young lady, called Lady Mary in the story, who had two brothers. One summer they all three went to a country seat of theirs, which they had not before visited. Among the other gentry in the neighbourhood who came to see them was a Mr Fox, a bachelor. Kind of sounds a bit Jane Austen. Note, however, that this is an aristocratic heroine and she has a name and she's named first. She isn't required to wed for wealth, but chooses on the basis of charm, status and good looks. She still has brothers, like Bluebeard's wife, but she's not reliant upon them for rescue. 
Yet already by the time the Grimm's rescue Fitch's bird, the story of Mr. Fox has started to absorb elements of Bluebeard. The Reverend Hudson in 1857 repeats the story again in his work on Shakespeare. In illustration of this passage, Mr. Blakeway has given his recollection of an old tale. Once upon a time there lived a Mr. Fox, a bachelor, who made it his business to decoy or force young women to his house that he might have their skeletons to adorn his chambers with. Nearby dwelt a family, the Lady Mary and her two brothers. Note that he is citing the earlier vision in, version in Malone, but his repetition is not exact. He includes the implication of Bluebeard's bad reputation with women and begins, like Perrault, with a description of the serial killer, not the heroine. In 1992, Faye Weldon tells the tale, returning Lady Mary to the fore, but again absorbing implications from Perrault's moral compass. Lady Mary, the High Lord's daughter, was betrothed by her father to the noble Mr. Fox. The day before her wedding, too inquisitive for her own good, she'd stolen into Mr. Fox's house. By this point, we can actually see that Lady Mary has lost a lot of her initial spunk and verve and is criticised for her curiosity, something for which the initial account in Malone does not punish her. Her boldness is actually her strength. Indeed, in the initial account, Lady Mary simply had nothing better to do on the day, and since Mr. Fox had invited her many times to see his house, she decides to go along. When she arrives, no one is there, and so she opens the door. Over the portal of the hall, be bold, be bold, but not too bold, she continues. Over the staircase, the same, she goes up the stairs. Over the entrance of a gallery, the same, she continues. Over the door of a chamber, be bold, be bold, but not too bold, lest your heart's blood should run cold. Recalls the great nephew, she opened it, it was full of skeletons, tubs of blood, etc., as she retreats, Mr. Fox is arriving, sword out, dragging a young woman by the hair. Lady Mary hides. The poor wretched victim reaches out a hand to hold the banister, and Mr. Fox cuts it off, complete with her rich bracelet. It falls into Lady Mary's lap, and she escapes with it. Mr. Fox comes to dine at the country seat of Lady Mary and her brothers. Guests tell wonderful tales, and Lady Mary begins to relate the remarkable dream she had. The dream she relates is actually the reality of her visit, but every time she reaches one of the bee bowls, she turns and smiles at Mr. Fox. It is not so, nor it was not so, she says, till she reaches the bit about the room with the skeletons and tubs of blood. Then it is Mr. Fox who repeats, it is not so, nor it was not so, and God forbid it should be so. Still he says so in response to the poor girl's hand, at which Lady Mary replies, but it is so, and it was so, and here is the hand I have to show and the guests at that point draw their swords and cut Mr. Fox into a thousand pieces, which is very satisfying. I'm actually inclined toward supporting the notion that Mr. Fox is of an older fairy tale tradition, one that has possibly existed in the oral tradition. The verbal formulas are reminiscent of, for example, Little Red Riding Hood and the My What Big Teeth You Have script, through which the wolf reveals his true identity and his intention to eat the girl, another bloody tale, even to its red hood. That the verbal formulas appear in other works does indeed suggest the tale is older, though as ever coincidence and retellings have an indeterminate role to play. Yet there are a couple of other factors indicating its antiquity. There is Lady Mary's station in life and her independence, which have more in common with earlier fairy tales, where women would decide upon husbands for themselves. 
this is perverse perhaps, the imposition of marriage didn't show up in the tales to such an extent until we get to Perot. Many of the earlier tales had very proactive heroines who would sometimes, as Mary Catherine Dornoy's Goldilocks does, even declare they don't need marriage, being perfectly content in their single status. There is also the role of denouement and punishment, the serial killer's comeuppance, if you like. Marina Warner writes of the gratifications of fairy tale, dreams of love, as well as the sweets of quick and capital revenge, the same private world of growing up female. The fear of falling prey to a serial killer is played out in the tales, yielding to a satisfyingly violent end to the monster and a frequently happy conclusion for the heroine who inherits his wealth. The denouement is my focus for the rest of the paper. I'm basically going to be looking at how Lady Mary and her male and female descendants manipulate the situation, putting together the clues, uncovering the bloody work of serial killers. Lady Mary comes from a strong tradition of fairy tale heroines who literally tell a tale in order to reveal a crime. They all have their parlour room scene, gathering together the protagonist, including the villain, ripe for his exposure, revealing the who, what, when and how. Basile's fairy tale collection, The Tale of Tales, features a frame tale. This was published in the 1630s, in which Sosa, princess of Harry Valley, which is appropriate considering our previous session, seeks an enchanted sleeping prince, but her efforts to revive the prince and wed him are usurped by a wicked slave girl. The slave girl goes on to wed the prince. Sosa, undaunted, pops along to their royal festival and tells the tale of the slave girl's deception before the prince and this felonious bride. The slave girl got, tries to stop Sosa reaching the matter of the deception. Quiet mouth, be still, or me punch belly and little Georgie kill, she cries, a threat to the prince's child that she now carries. But the prince encourages Zosa to finish her tale, after which her identity is actually clear and the prince proceeds to bury the slave girl alive. They're very cheerful endings. Even earlier, Lady Mary finds a predecessor in Scheherazade, whose new husband has been beheading all his wives. It is said he was betrayed by his first wife, triggering this homicidal habit. The tales of Scheherazade, tales she tells to save her life and calm the, her bloodthirsty spouse, are recorded in the Middle Ages, drawing on older oral traditions, we think. The 9th century collection A Thousand Tales provided the frame. As Jack Sipes suggests, Scheherazade's tales aim to, quote, return him to the world of civilization and humanity. His reaction to his wife's betrayal is so extreme and his wound so deep that he has apparently been reacting to the same traumatic experience suffered during his childhood, end quote. Scheherazade uses tales not to identify the murderer, as Caliph he is already happily getting away with it, but to rehabilitate him and save herself and her sister from becoming another trophy in his bloody chamber. Lady Mary, however, witnesses the struggles of one of the victims of such crime and has no compunction in denouncing Mr Fox and having him killed on the spot. So putting the clues together... Oops. We've lost it. Um, we're basically going to be looking at the red herring. Thank you. And this is the blood symbolism of the beautiful maidens and the idea of coming of age and childbirth. Snow White's mother pricked her finger on a needle and on seeing her blood fall upon snow, she wished for her child as white as snow, red as blood and black as ebony. She's actually predated by a wish of a prince in Basile's 17th century Italian tale who, cutting his finger with the cheese knife, announces he got the fancy to find a woman as white and red as that very ricotta stained with his blood. Yes, he found she's sexy. For, he continued, never has a woman moved my blood and now I desire a woman like my own blood. 
Allow me the comfort of wandering through the world in search of a beauty that may equal that of this ricotta. You do worry about him. <laughs> Otherwise, I will finish my race and go to ruin. In fact, Brazil's tales are filled with girls the colour of blood. There's Pozzes, uh, I'm not Italian, so I'm going to ruin this, Pozzesella, who looked like she was made of nothing but milk and blood. A king who wishes for a wife the colours of a freshly killed crow upon white marble. Oh heavens, couldn't I have a wife as white and red as that stone, with hair and la- eyelashes as black as the feathers of this crow? Again, kind of a bit of a worry. Basile is even predated by Detroit's medieval tale of Percival, reminded of his great love by the drops of blood upon snow. Of course, European fairy tales did come largely from the troubadour tradition. These tricolour heroines, as Francisca Vaz de Silva describes the girls of red, white and black, are models of idealised womanhood. Here's the trick, though, the fly in the ointment, if you like. There is always a hint of underlying violence in the bloodiness of the heroine's complexion. Likewise, her snow-white complexion makes her literally look like death. And such heroines often do spend a great deal of time unconscious or simply dead. Neil Gaiman teased this out in his tale Snow Glass Apples, realising Snow White is a vampire, the undead. Likewise, blood in the tales is frequently linked to the business of childbirth, throughout history a dangerous and potentially deadly process for women. In Bluebeard, Marina Warner points to the bloody chamber as the place where previous wives have perished in childbirth, a warning to the new bride. Bluebeard's bloody chamber and lack of heirs may simply indicate the grim reality of a high mother and infant mortality. He himself may be no serial killer but an unlucky husband. However, such arguments have no place in my paper today. Bluebeard is a serial killer, the worst of the worst. It is a crime, not natural causes, that lie at the heart of the bloody matter. And this is where we shift to the meta-fairy tale. Shifting focus to today, we actually see the growth of the meta-fairy tale in comics and television. Such fairy tales greedily absorb a whole assortment of known heroes and heroines, villains and plots, and create a complex narrative with which to bind them all together. This paper was itself partly inspired by the recent news that NBC greenlit the pilot of Grimm, a cop show featuring characters from Grimm's fairy tales. This is not actually a new idea. You can see a DVD there for FTPD, which was an animated um, series about fairy tale police. And there's also Adam Green's series, Fairy Tale Police. In fact, crime is often the very thing that binds the meta fairy tale together. But why crime? Fairy tales are filled with murderers, con artists, thieves and other lowlifes who need to be brought to justice. There are also just enough heroes and heroines who push the limits of the law to make things interesting. While marriage may bring a happy ending, even if you have to kill your husband first, it is crime that keeps the characters busy. And there's nothing that keeps characters busy like serial killers, who often adopt fairy tale-like names, if you've noticed. So serial killers are very popular in meta-fairy tale. In Jasper Ford's novels, and you can see the first one of the nursery crime unit there, Mary Mary is a descendant, in fact, of Our Lady Mary, a contrary but dedicated police officer. Jack Spratt is famous for arresting serial wife killer Bluebeard and continues to hunt down that notorious serial killer, at least in Ford's view, the gingerbread man, the gingerbread man usually on the run. His boss, Briggs, says, Spratt does some good work. Not high profile, you understand, but important. His work on the Bluebeard serial wife killings case was mostly good solid police work. Mary responds, if nine wives died, he couldn't have been that good. 
Briggs responds, I said it was mostly good police work. The Trail of Blood evidence launches the Metaferry Town comic series Fables by Bill Willingham, and the two central images are from that series. The first case is the case of the supposed death of Rose Red, sister of Snow White, of the Blood Red Lips. Bigby, the big bad wolf, has stopped eating little girls in red hoods and is now sheriff and responsible for solving the crime. In fact, Rose Red has become secretly engaged to Bluebeard, who, since the escape of fairy tale characters to the mundane world, contemporary New York, has been granted amnesty for all his previous crimes. Rose Red staged the bloody room in her own apartment, faking her own death in a plan to con Bluebeard that has gone horribly wrong. Bigby puts everything together and enacts the classic denouement in a toweling robe. The case is not merely one of blood evidence, but draws together many of the blood signifiers of fairy tale, readily identified by references to the colour red. Urban fantasy, of course, has been another popular avenue for the bloody fairy tale. Vampires are serial killers, and they have a very bloody trail. And Joss Whedon has been a particularly notable teller of such tales. Ironically, the episode Ted in season two of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and you can see an image at the top from that, that episode, is the most explicit Bluebeard tale in the series, but features no blood. Buffy's mother starts dating the incredibly nice guy, Ted. Buffy distrusts him. He must be a monster. Actually, this Bluebeard turns out to be a robot. And he doesn't exactly kill his brides, but keeps them locked up till they die, then puts them in a cupboard, which serves as his bloodless, bloody chamber. Nonetheless, he is clearly identified as a serial killer and Buffy takes over the role of the saviour brothers, dispatching him. He is cut up and disposed of, though Buffy's friend Willow apparently keeps a piece to study, saying, I just want to learn stuff. Their other friend Cordelia remarks, like how to build your own serial killer. But Buffy and Sister Series Angel feature many serial killers like Caleb and Spike and Angel, who you can all see up there too. In Lonely Hearts, an episode of Angel, Cordelia articulates the danger of working for a vampire with a soul who runs the risk of turning back into a killer if he falls in love and has sex. Cordelia says, you might feel a moment of true happiness and lose your soul, become evil again, and kill everyone. Thanks, Cordelia. I always appreciate your perspective, says Angel. Cordelia laughs. No problem. Hey, the last thing I want is to show up at the office and find that I'm working for a homicidal monster. It's a nice twist on the bridegroom killer, Love, his own desire, turns him into the monster. Cordelia's pragmatic response undoes the fear aspect as she is knowledgeable and can control this monster. In Crush, an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, there is an implicit link between Spike, the peroxide blonde vampire, and Bluebeard. Buffy says, you're like a serial killer in jail. Spike responds, women marry him all the time. In the same episode, Spike is telling Dawn stories about his past. And I kill them, right? Quick, the whole lot. But there's someone missing. There's something, it's supposed to be this little girl. So I get real quiet and I hear this tiny noise coming from the coal bin, this little sigh. So I listened harder. It's very, very quiet. And then he gets interrupted. Oddly enough, Spike, our bluebeard, has become the narrator and frequently tells stories or explains what's going down throughout the series, once even narrating Angel's hero bluebeard complex giving voice to his actions. You see, I was once a badass vampire, but love and a pesky curse defamed me, and now I'm just a big fluffy puppy with bad teeth. The bluebeard Mr. Fox figure has become the charming storyteller, reveling in telling his crimes to a rapt audience. 
In Spike's case, he tells his tales in an effort to appear more magnificent and wonderful, to rise above his human existence as something of a failure. People tell stories about Bluebeard, not about failed, lovelorn poets like Spike's human self. The shift to the Bluebeard figure as tale-teller goes beyond urban fantasy. In Dexter, a series about a serial killer who kills other serial killers, Dexter provides commentary on his own story. Dexter is Scheherazade's husband, traumatised by the murder of his mother, but it is Dexter who narrates stories, not his wife, who must remain ignorant of his bloody activities. She says, speaking of another case, thank God she is alive. That poor thing must be a mess falling for a serial killer. Dexter responds, what are the odds? And this brings us lastly to The Mentalist, in which Patrick Jane, once a famous psychic, tracks down the serial killer Red John, who killed his wife and child. Patrick Jane is a charming, well-dressed, civilised version of Lady Mary. He is bold, he is a trickster, glib with words, observant, and knows how to work an audience in order to force the killer to reveal himself or herself. Happily, he even evokes the sense of the dream that Lady Mary recounts to reveal the case of Mr Fox's murder. Jane says, I programmed my dreams to work on the Red John case. He says this in episode four of season three, Red Carpet Treatment. The name of the killer, Red John, and the titles of all individual episodes evoke the red red as the colour of blood. Jane, pointing to a red car in one of the episodes, said, this colour represents passion, love, lust. Red John himself leaves his own message to those who dare to enter the bloody chamber. Only he seizes rooms belonging to his victims as these bloody chambers, using their own blood to inscribe the crying smiley upon the wall. And you can see it there. Effectively daring Lady Mary's and Patrick Jane's to be bold, be bold, but not too bold, lest your heart's blood should run cold. Like Lady Mary, Patrick Jane is bold and will certainly reveal Red John to the world eventually in a few more series, ensuring his death. The Mentalist creates yet another tale of Bluebeard, this time with a smiley face. Thank you. Who hasn't fallen in love with a piece of cheese at least once in their life? <laughs> I'm very glad you mentioned Dexter as well because I, I did. Uh, I said this was the last event. It's not. There is Jeff Lindsay will be here at five o'clock in conversation. Uh, he's the creator of Dexter. So after this event, you can wander down, and there are still tickets available from the registration desk. Catherine Cole is the Deputy Dean and Professor of Creative Writing in the Faculty of Creative Arts at the University of Wollongong. She is the author of the novels Dry Dock, Skin Deep and The Grave at Thulee. And her non-fiction books are The Poet Who Forgot and Private Dicks and Feisty Chicks, an interrogation of crime fiction. Today, she will be addressing the way that Bluebeard's Forbidden Room functions as a metaphor for the manner in which audiences and readers of crime narratives are drawn into the dangerous and challenging world of murder. Moral panics, scientific developments and the historical changes that have shaped these popular narratives are just some of the factors Catherine will examine as she now presents Death as Entertainment. I've called the session, actually, Bluebeard's Room, The Lure of Crime Fiction, because I think that says a lot about the way in which we are drawn into crime narratives. 
and I'd like to offer some observations of the Bluebeard story, arguing that the readers of crime fiction and statistics still show that women are the greatest consumers of crime, are like Bluebeard's wife, and thus the story, just as the story of Eve and Pandora and Lot's wife offer as similarly curious women, is about empowerment through the need to know, to puzzle, to experience danger, however vicariously, and ultimately to triumph through solving the narrative's mysteries. Crime readers are a lot like the young wife in the Bluebeard story. They just can't mind their own business. They've been given a key and they have to see what's behind the door. The drive to know the truth or the resolution of the story, a complex and questioning reading of the crime narrative, relies on the reader's ability to participate, to test, puzzle, believe, discard, moralise, punish, a process which allows relaxation only at the novel's resolution and then only in a knowledge that one's instincts were right in the first place. Through this process, clues become the mortar of crime fiction, bonding the plot, characters, setting and pace to the genre's narrative structure. The wife must have suspected something behind the door or else she couldn't have um, approached it to, to open it. But what was it? Clues are closely linked to the reader's constant questioning. What did Bluebeard's, why did Bluebeard's wife open the door? What did she imagine was behind it? What had she sensed about a husband who up till then Perot would have us believe was a generous and kindly man? Did the washerwoman report blood on his clothes? Did Bluebeard's wife notice that he spent rather a lot of time in that locked room? Did she raise these concerns with her sister and brothers? What role did they play in suggesting she check out the room? Did Bluebeard avoid questions about his former wives? Did he react oddly to any of her questions? And at what point did Bluebeard sense her knowing, serially producing the key as a test, a lure and an entrapment? The crime reader schooled in such questions suspects what is happening. As a result of this, their anxiety mounts and it is this tension which forms such an essential part of the interactivity of the crime text. They read as a scholar reads, noting, marking, storing the clues in readiness to draw their conclusions. In reading, they also research, becoming worldly about morals and sexuality, blood and body parts. The writer and theorist Franco Moretti sees crime fiction's clues as formal devices because their narrative function, the encrypted reference to the criminal or the villain, remains constant, although the clues themselves, the concrete embodiment of changes, they, they change from story to story. They can be words or cigarette butts, footprints, smells, noises and so on. An experienced crime reader, and this is all of us, the Bluebeard's wives of the crime reading process, anticipate these references, knowing that in the most seemly innocuous of conversations, in the placement of a piece of furniture, in the lines of characters, a character's favourite poem or a victim's choice of a drink, may rest the piece of the larger puzzle. The more widely a crime reader reads, the more skilled they become. Cultural differences and the subtleties of gender or class enter their clue lexicon. It's been hypothesised that this clue-hunting process reaches back to a time when survival relied on such skills. 
Carlo Ginsberg um, says that a reader's ability to read clues may have its origins in the distant storytelling of their prehistoric hunter-gatherer forebears. The hunter may have been the first to tell a story, Ginsberg notes, because only hunters knew how to read a coherent sequence of events from the silent, even imperceptible signs left by their prey. Bluebeard, then, was as watchful of his wife as she was of him. What first alerted him to her anxiety... What was it about her manner, her attitude to him, that made him decide to test her? When did he plan to trap her, to set her up with that key? If we agree with Carlo Ginsberg, we have stored within our genetic selves patterns of reading which enable us to identify a villain such as Bluebeard, be they a predatory co-worker, an unreliable cop, a serial killer, all of them potentially deadly, not only to us as individuals but to our social group as well. By misreading a person's character, we could starve, lose our shelter, be attacked by marauding tribes. If our powers of deduction, those skills that tell us instinctively to be suspicious of generous men with blue beards, were to slip, we might find ourselves dead. And so it is with crime's clue patterns. Identify this clue quickly because the next one will be even more threatening. Know how to recognise red herrings because they may lead you to a trap. Reinstate order and retreat to the safety of a harmonious community because a failure to do so can only end in danger to society as a whole. What might have made us suspicious of Bluebeard? His appearance, the number of wives he'd gone through, his age, his scent, his sexuality, his generous offers, well, those sweets to an unsuspecting child. And I think it's very interesting that uh, Crane picture there looks so much like Henry VIII. <laughs> He's another one who seemed to go through wives. And what on earth did that say to society at the time? This demystifying of clues relies not just on the instinctual skills we may have inherited from our cave-dwelling forebears. It's also a scientific process as rigorous as a laboratory examination of a virus. It requires the full participation of a reader, calling on their understanding of science and nature. Clues are seldom coded, Umberto Eco argued, and their interpretation is frequently a matter of complex inference, which makes criminal novels far more interesting than the detection of pneumonia. Crime writers and readers are complicit partners in this. For the crime writer, the plotting of a crime narrative and the careful placement of clues is a complex process. The early clues foreshadow the more dangerous ones that will follow. A writer must carefully locate their clues. Bluebeard may have looked oddly when his wife wondered about his family history. She may have asked over breakfast, ''Are there other bluebeards in your family, my sweet?'' A seemingly innocuous reaction will alert the reader that something isn't right. In crafting their story, the writer makes sport with these nods towards the astute reader. Got that one, did you? Let's see if you can find the next one. Goodness, my poor husband, you certainly had bad luck with your previous wives, didn't you? And the reader's heart might begin to race. The construction of clues often relies on rigorous research. Apart from forensic knowledge of the human body, crime writers draw on their specialist backgrounds, researching an area in detail if such a background eludes them. 
The choice of a character's name, for example, may hold a clue about the type of person they are. Think about Inspector Morse. I always think Morse such a coded character in so many ways. And V.I. Wachowski, who, you know, Sarah Paretsky's character, who's of Polish background and therefore different in a range of ways. Bluebeard's wife. Do we ever know her name? She's every woman, every wife. We, the, the other things may be their musical tastes or literary preferences. There are, they, these can contain within their poetics information about a character. Bluebeard's beard isolated him from all the other suitors. The young woman who, after an instinctive caution about the oddity of his looks, married him because he was kind, generous, rich, or so she thought... And I think it's interesting that I've taken a stool from Catherine Briatt's um, film there. Um, her her uh, representation of Bluebeard as a, a warm, sexual or uh, paternalistic, loving person, um, a mentoring character, um, adding to the sense of betrayal and um, of the oddness of their relationship. Frank Commode distinguishes this seeking for truth in seemingly innocent moments as a key element of crime fiction calling it specialised hermeneutic organisation, a process by which a reader must respond to and order the clues to produce a solution to the narrative problem. It requires the reader to think carefully, to ponder the wider mystery, to draw on their experience of cautionary tales and reiterated myths, as well as their knowledge of science. They must determine what is real and what is chimera, what is a sign and what is not. Knight and McKnight take Kermode's views even further, believing that the focus on the cognitive and hermeneutic structure of detection narratives occurs within the narrative itself, characteristically through the central investigative figure. But it is repeated at a second level in our interaction with the narrative, since readers and viewers of crime shows alike are encouraged to form prospective hypotheses about how things will go and indeed in many cases to form retrospective hypotheses about how things have gone. In their hypothesising, the reader orders and reorders the process by which the author developed their plot. The reader's questions mirror the questions the author asked themselves as they wrote the book. What if? Could they? What time were they? Did he? Is there? Central to the Bluebid story is whether you or I would have suspected him, would we have opened the door? Underpinning this authorial uncertainty is the uncertainty which belongs to the reader alone. Through a series of steps which challenge their ability to judge and decipher, the reader will eventually have reason to question the reliability of their own assessment of what is really going on. It might also lead us to question our own compassion. Was Bluebeard a victim of prejudice or a murderous psychopath? Constant disadvantage or discrimination as a result of his blue beard may have just pushed him over the edge and the repeated betrayal of his trust by everyone he formed a close relationship with must have been very, very destabilising. Was he criminally insane? A reader is also influenced by their times. Franco Moretti is of the view that at times of great social, 
philosophical and morphological change, the individual writer behaves exactly like the genre in which they work. This is reflected in the way the reader reads. We see this process in contemporary crime novels, particularly those which employ issues that concern or frighten the public. In utilising these anxieties, crime writers explore community anxieties about technological advances such as access to the internet and its use in sexual or corporate crimes. Scientific discoveries such as genetic engineering and cloning, the fear of diseases such as HIV, AIDS and SARS, and the, and the social manifestations of political movements such as the collapse of the communist bloc or global terrorism or the rise of the extreme right. These changes find their way into crime narratives tentatively at first or simplistically, their developments mirroring those on which they are based, becoming more complex, as does the real, less certain of certainties, more aware of the dichotomies. At the time Perrault was writing, France, as was much of Europe, was more a series of city-states and cantons than the unified country, which developed after Napoleon. People... Um, who were deeply distrustful of strangers, rarely wed beyond their own villages, and France had one of the most inbred societies in Europe. Crime narratives often require the reader to take sides. The mysteries of crime fiction and all the clues which are attendant upon them involve the examination and redefining of two poles. The most commonly explored life and death, greed and altruism, violation and innocence. The primary role of the clue narrative is to examine the binaries between the two, offering a choice between good or evil, life or death, leading the narrator and the reader to choose the one with the greatest capacity for redemption. As the reader puzzles, they are offered a range of clues, some of which hold the truth, others jostling with the reader to tempt them and lead them away from the truth with the key towards that door. They test the reader's stamina, their morality, prompting them to draw on their own backgrounds and social training. To use the key or not to use the key? What would I do in this situation? Would I take the key but respect my, priv- my partner's privacy and not open the door? Or would I open the door? Crime writers play on this desire resistance, leading the reader on. Don't open the door, the reader implores of Bluebeard's first wife the second wife, the third wife, all the while knowing that the women's fatal decision will set the narrative in motion and that their murder is required for the the story to be shaped and to get, get it going. Mysteries are also cabalistic in that their clues offer a view into a secret, unspoken place, a chance to examine the impossible, to expose the world to danger and then return it to safety. The crime reader wants to participate in the examination and the return and ultimately in the justice and the punishment. They earn their right to do this because they too have solved the crime. So, the reader becomes Bluebeard because they kill, the wives because they're killed, the investigative wife, the busybody wife, because they open the door. They discover the true story they punish, and they live happily ever after. And so they turn that key, open the door, and enter the bloody room.
One question that I think is of interest to contemporary crime writers and readers is whether Bluebeard's wife might have actually joined Bluebeard in his rampages. Myra Hindley, Mrs West, offer contemporary narratives of women who joined in with or turned a blind eye to what their partners were doing. And, you know, we often wonder what Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper's wife, thought when he came home every night and washed his clothes as soon as he got in the front door. A Bluebeard's wife who shares her husband's murderous impulses would offer a perverse and bloody form of agency. So here we are in the bloody room. And we have Nancy Drew. We like to start them young. Blood plays a, major, uh, plays a number of, of different clue roles in crime fiction, contaminating but also deeply symbolic in both a secular and a non-secular way. What is it about blood that draws us into a crime narrative in ways that other bodily fluids don't? We're less interested, I think, in faeces or urine, snot or saliva, semen or vaginal secretions, all of them lubricants to the body's vast landscape and the bearers of their own tales. Perhaps it's because in violent crime scenes the narrative takes on its own form of sanguinity or bloodiness. Crime readers don't need to know the scientific details of these blood processes. They're intrinsic to our daily lives. We know if blood stops flowing, we die, and that is enough. Blood's role is, as mu is much more polyphonic, speaking to the reader in all manner of ways. Few people will ever see a murdered body or participate in an autopsy, but they know that blood will hold the majority of clues to a victim's demise. It is the harbinger of personal history, its genes containing within their cellular structures the genetic history of the victim's antecedents. The manner in which it has flowed, splattering onto walls or leaking slowly into a rug, will speak volumes of the gashes and gunshot wounds that cause the, the blood to flow. Rigor, levito reticularis, seizures, death rattles, form the chorus by which blood marks its exit from the fractured body. Reading blood's clues is a legal, medical, social and a metaphysical process. And who has done this killing? The bloodletting? The killer? Certainly the reader killer. Crime fiction can be complicit with the murders... Uh, crime fiction readers can be complicit with the murders uh, described because it draws its um, energy from, from the lifeblood, from a hostility to others and from their capacity to kill whilst at the same time allowing the reader to disassociate themselves from these desires. In reading and interpreting a crime novel's fictional criminal acts, the reader can be racist, sexist or homophobic, as homophobic as they like. They may suspect an Arabic or Aboriginal character because, after all, they would respond to the popular discourse in the mainstream media in the same manner. If a suspect is described in their morning paper in a racially stereotyped manner, the reader may continue to read the fictional crime narrative in the same way. I think Bluebeard himself is an interesting character. Charismatic, generous, sexual, darkly foreign. That Bluebeard might also be a phallic reference to his sexual powers. Until we see the room through the eyes of his young wife, the reader is taken with, um, his, with Bluebeard's exoticism and sensuality. 
This other ring of Bluebeard, his visual representation by illustrators such as Rackham, located him as a Middle Eastern sultan or an exotic Moor. And that, that was particularly prevalent in the 19th century uh, with Quillacooch and so on, um, othering him in a range of ways which it had not happened in earlier um, iterations. And this adds further to the myth of staying true to your own kind. If you're going to marry someone who's a bit exotic, well, what can you expect? <laughs> Make your own bed and lie in it, you know, those sorts of things. The reader is given permission to dislike... Um, a lot of things about Bluebeard, especially if one examines the 18th and 19th century pictorial representations of him. His blue beard, and even the men wore beards in those days, so having a blue one obviously makes him the odd man out. His big nose, as represented in many of the illustrations, swarthy skin, size and weight, uh, personality. And um, one picture I which I'm hoping... Oh, sorry, I'm jumping. Uh, he often looks very Jewish also in some of the drawings. It's easy to be glad he's killed when he's so different. And what of all the meddling Bluebeard's wives? What about the readers? In entering the constructed world of crime fiction, the role of the reader also becomes highly suspect. They become colluders implicated by their own voyeurism. They want the crime to happen. That is why they bought the novel after all. And if it promises a frightening read, the more tense and terrifying, the better. They want to enter the crime scene. They expect a wealth of detail. Blood spray patterns, bone fragments and dental records are studied with all the care of one of the tech's forensic pathologists. They don't want the crime solved too soon. They want to participate. One of the most important tenets for any new crime writer of whodunits is that the tension builds and the crime remains unsolved for as long as possible. The reader stalks with the killer. Will they kill again? Who will be the next victim? They see the victim through the villain's eyes and study them and watch their every move, ready for the right moment to strike. And by virtue of this process, the reader becomes a criminal too. And what of the victims? What might Bluebeard's victims have to say about all of this? And I quote. Using a lens, I began going over her, an inch at a time, her flesh, a microscopic landfill of debris. With forceps, I collected pale fibres from the bloody stump that had once been her neck, and I found hairs, three of them, greyish-white, about 14 inches long, adhering to dried blood posteriorly. Embedded in the ends of each humerus or the bone of the upper arm and also in the margins of muscle around it were more fibres and tiny fragments of fabric that looked pale blue, meaning the saw had, must have gone through it. She was dismembered through her clothes or something else she was wrapped in, I said, startled. That could be someone walking into Bluebeard's room, but it's um, Jane, not Jane Tennyson, it's Kay Scarpetta in The Bloody Room and, of course, the quote is from Patricia Cornwall's Unnatural Exposure. It's a little tableau of Bluebeard chopping off another wife's head. Despite the research conducted by crime writers, the violence inflicted in crime narratives, just like crime statistics, is one of the first casualties of truth. In all but the most scientifically accurate of forensic novels, fictionalised crime scenes are just stage sets, after all, used to the full potential of their poetic horror to ensnare the reader. It doesn't really matter that some of the details are wrong or misrepresenting. 
The greatest terror for the reader lies in the potential for threat within the familiar. It is all about identification, criminal lawyer and crime novelist Francis Fifield claims, because the same thing could happen to you. The fear factor is a potent part of the allure of crime fiction. Mandy Merck from Holloway College says men tend to do this in public, using slasher movies or reckless driving or playing dangerous games as a form of initiation into manhood. Competitive, daring and challenging, the rituals test the young man's ability to survive. Women prefer their challenges in private. This is a generalisation, I realise. Often reading scary books for the same reasons, to see if they can survive. Would I read the signs? How would I escape? Would I sense the danger in the offer of a drink? Not if you're Mrs Goodbar or Mr Goodbar. The questions serve the same function for the reader as moralising fairy tales which prepare young children for crossing busy roads or for avoiding a stranger's sweets or the lift in their car. The fear to which women are introduced as little girls is played out over and over again, Firefield believes. She thinks fear is implanted in us from an early age. We're more protected and we're, not always, um, we're, we're always being told not to go down dark alleys, which is ironic given that young men are most likely to be the victims of crime. This fear stays with us for the rest of our lives. Writing or reading about it is a way to take the lid off it, to explore it rather than just sliding around it. And I'll, I'll move on quickly because I realise I'm running out of time. But the, when we think of uh, the more violent symbolism of crime fiction, um, we, we see uh, v- vampires and wolves. Authors such as Thomas Harris and Patricia Cornwell use mythology to great effect in novels containing monsters such as Hannibal Lecter, Temple Gault. They're the bogeymen or boogeymen of our childhood and the childhoods of countless generations before us. Embedded in these tales about predation and loss of control is the fear of the monster within as well and the moral contradictions each of us contain. Could I act in this way? Could I be seduced by evil? If I went over to the other side, could I ever return? Endlessly replayed anxieties, retellings of fairy tales such as Bluebeard and Red Riding Hood and Beauty and the Beast. Perot's story is timeless just as there is a timeless quality to most of the crime narratives we watch or read today. It continues to offer conundrums about narrative, moral intent and agency. Who is the focus of the story and the the murderous husband or the betraying wife? Who has the true agency in the story? What is symbolised in each of the story's elements? And what does it tell us about Perot's or about our own times? And so we say thank you to Perot for the Bluebeard story, its hero wife, and its continuing iterations. Its literary tropes have travelled with us from Perot's time. Marriage and the need for a young woman to choose wisely and well are themes we see in the Brontes' work and Jane Austen and in the relationship choices of contemporary characters such as the women in Sex in the City or Bridget Jones's diary. The desire to know everything about a partner... Bluebeard generously offers his wife all his wealth and finery, but tantalisingly prohibits just one element of himself, the locked room. What person wouldn't be tempted to know everything? What does this also say in an increasingly public world about the right to retain something that is our own? The right to secrets and the consequence of breaking that down. What betrayals are represented in this and how do we defend the murderous response? And we've heard about uh, the, the symbolism of the, the, the bloody room about 
death by um, child uh, birth and so on. But what does it also say about the way in which marriage can, 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 can kill us in a range of, of ways? And the rescue. Who rescues whom? So the lesson remains to be doubly careful of those you do not know and to hone your selection skills on life through reading crime fiction. We also need, as Clarissa Estes says, and I'll just jump to... We also need, as Estes says, to celebrate curiosity. We must unlock or pry things open to see what is inside. We must use our insight and ability to understand what we see. We must speak our truth in a clear voice and we must be able to use our wits to do what needs to be about what we see. And if crime fiction is a reflection of the contemporary, then perhaps the next iteration of a locked room will be WikiLeaks and Julian Assange, Bluebeard or Wife. You take your pick. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine. That was fabulous. I'm um, just dying to read all my Ray- Raymond Chandler novels again now and don't need to feel guilty for doing that. Terry Waddell is a senior lecturer in media and cinema studies at La Trobe University, where she explores gender and identity in popular culture, cinema, television studies, myth and analytical psychology. Her most recent book is Wild Lives, Trickster, Place and Liminality on Screen, and her current research includes projects on burlesque and the Australian lost child complex in cinema. In her presentation today, she'll be inverting the Bluebeard myth to examine forbidden female spaces as sites of transformation and death in cinema. Looking at genre, myth and fairy tale, Terry will discuss the rooms that men can't enter, else they get literally or metaphorically murdered in the forbidden room in cinema narratives. Bet you can't guess what that room is. Does anybody know? It's from Repulsion. And that's the inside looking out, someone trying to get in. When Anna asked me, Anna Svenberg asked me to present on the Forbidden Room in cinema, I had a kind of heart murmur back to my favourite fairy tales as a kid. And Long Stout and Sharp Eyes was my most favourite. But my second favourite was The Twelve Dancing Princesses. And it goes like this. There were 12 princesses who were locked every night in their room by the king, their dad, and each morning their dancing shoes were worn to pieces. And so he decided that any man who could find out how this happened would be able to marry any princess of his choice. And guided by a cloak of invisibility, a young flower boy was able to sneak into the princess's room discover their secret trap door, follow them out across the river in their gondolas. It wasn't an Italian story, but there were gondolas in my picture book. To what in those days must have been a very happening dance venue and watch them dance the night away with 12 gorgeous princes of their choice and then make it home in time to fake a good night's sleep. 
He told all this to the king, little Dobber, and he was rewarded with one of the girls. And they never danced again. And I was a really little kid. I remember I was about five, four or five. And I wasn't upset by this, but I was just curious. I thought, why should anyone want to swap them dance, stop them dancing? And why should they be rewarded for doing this? And all these many, many years later, I still think it's a relevant metaphor. So it's this sense of entitlement to intrude on female space. And that space can be emotional, intellectual, environmental, and of course corporeal. And I'm going to talk about that today. Rather than draw on contemporary comparisons with bluebeards harbouring of rotting corpses and his seemingly wife-proof room, a sort of dispatch and disposal site hidden from young wives, I'm going to twist the story around by looking at forbidden spaces owned and often aggressively defended by women and girls. The penetration of which, uh, particularly by uninvited men, but not always men, it can be women, led to a really grisly end. I have a little image of Dore here, which I think everybody has used. So in the crudest, crudest psychoanalytic sense, it's as if a rape is or has taken place, a forced entry into a sacred space. These forbidden genre-spanning rooms in cinema can be retreats from social and emotional expectations. They can be metaphors for psychic states, traumas or imaginary inner sanctuaries, and prisons for gender transgression. As Mary Doan writes of the incarcerated Mrs Rochester, the erotic Antoinette in Jean Rees's Wide Sargasso Sea. In Jane Eyre, the secret locked in the tower room, actively concealed from Jane, is excessive femininity. Her excesses drove her to madness, Rochester tells Jane. But incarcerated characters of and springing from Gothic literature who might welcome intruders able to free them from the purgatory they've been put in isn't really my focus. I'm more interested in characters who create or protectively guard their own literal or metaphoric rooms, no-go zones to undesirables. So, as anyone who has ever read or anyone who has ever heard of Virginia Woolf will know, a woman must have a room of her own. And we can play the clips that are coming up.
vivía una princesa que soñaba con el mundo de los humanos. Soñaba con el cielo azul, la brisa suave y el brillante sol. Un día, burlando toda vigilancia, la princesa escapó. Una vez en el exterior, la luz del sol la cegó y borró de su memoria cualquier indicio del pasado. Father Callas. Damien, the response, please, Damien. Do let my cry come unto thee. Almighty Lord, word of God the Father, Jesus Christ, God the Lord of all creation, gave to your holy apostles the power to turn underfoot serpents and scorpions. Grant me, your unworthy servant, pardon for all my sins. I had to make a little cut in that because I wasn't sure if there'd be younger children here or, or younger adolescents here. As soon as they open the door, she just lets rip with all this swearing. I think I should have kept it in. Um, so... The breadth of films that deal with these topics and permutations of the topic, of course, are going to be much too broad for me to talk about today. So these clips are a representative sample of the various forms of forbidden rooms and their inhabitants can take. And they're the ones you just saw up there. So lethal female guardians often cross genres, so it's important to understand the intention of the killing and the gravity of the, of the intrusion. The slaughter or psychological dismissing of these meddlers is not always carried out by the owner of the room. Often it can be done by her sympathisers, her friends or family or lovers. In an uncomfortable number of these films, lone women and their rooms carry with them a sense of vulnerability as if something will inevitably happen to them. They often crave to share this space with a lover, become a little unbalanced, or die. It's an odd championing of female liberation and its impossibility. Psychologically troubled characters can not only fall into the horror uh, thriller category like Roman Polanski's Repulsion, Von Trier's Antichrist, uh, Friedkin's The Exorcist, and at a pinch we might put Aronofsky's Black Swan up there as well. But even a film like Todd Haynes' Safe twists the theme in another direction. And there's Juliana Moore again there. She was seen in a clip from the hours where the water was covering her pregnant belly. 
She plays the character of Carol White here and she self-diagnoses her anxiety attacks as extreme sensitivity to airborne toxins and so she gradually shuts herself away in this environmentally safe room. By the end of the film, she's in effect eliminated all intrusive bodily invaders, including her family and their germs. In the horror thriller action film, we have characters of more independent means, prepared or pushed by corrupt trespassers to defend their space. Just after the, the very first opening clip we saw of Lara Croft, uh, a group of henchmen from the secret society, the Illuminati, burst into her room and trying to steal her key. Yeah, interesting twist on Bluebeard. Uh, and she kills them all. In the Canadian-French film, The Little Girl Who Lived Down the Lane, it tells 14-year-old Wren, played by 14-year-old Jodie Foster. And when I was about the same age, not to date myself too much, I rushed out to see this film and I loved it. Now, Wren is an independent child woman and she's got a demeanour not unlike Maddie Ross in the Coen's True Grit. And she's forced to kill her mother her landlady, and this landlady's would-be pedophile husband, played by a young Martin Sheen. The name comes up again. So they all push their way into her ordered living room and demand ownership of her. In Panic Room, uh, down the bottom there, uh, Foster, now grown, off, grown up, fends off burglars in her New York townhouse in a hermetically sealed, a safe panic room with her daughter, and let's not forget the 1978 revenge classic, I Spit on Your Grave, where a young writer is repeatedly gang-raped in her house and the surrounding countryside. I tried to find an image of that, but it, they all seemed a bit too obscene, she said. I didn't put it in. The forbidden room can also be internal, a literal womb. In their book on 19th century female writers, Mad Women in the Attic, Sandra Gilbert and Susan Goober argue that these women, like many of their gothic trapped uh, characters, which are metaphors for themselves, were writing in suffocating atmosphere of male privilege and literary fashions. Confined in this way, they were forced to challenge snug systems of gender-appropriate behaviour. Gilbert and Goober also point out that tomb-like enclosures or the caves that women of myth and fiction inhabited often reflected this idea of the womb. They can be understood as interuterine and therefore regenerative. If we extend this to the forbidden guarded rooms, the same pattern emerges where these spaces serve as metaphors for both female physiology and places of change, death and transformation and rebirth. In one of the clips shown, uh, Julianne Moore plays Lara from The Hours, is trying to cut herself off from her 1950s domestic hell by finding the privacy of a hotel room, an ideal sanctuary to read uh, Virginia Woolf, overdose with tablets, and so relieve herself of her unborn child, an unwelcome womb intrusion. Unpleasant womb gate crashes are, of course, a staple of the horror film, and Rosemary's Baby is probably the classic reference point here. It's in these horror bodily spaces that the most grotesque 
transformations take place. Forbidden room wombs are aptly combined in Grimm's Rapunzel, and that's been talked about in a couple of previous um, presentations, where our incarcerated heroine invites the prince into her room on a regular basis for trysts which lead to pregnancy. And this doesn't go unnoticed by the wicked witch because Rapunzel's corsets fail to lace up properly. And so she's banished to the desert. Um, the prince is blind in a thicket of thorns. Um, the witch is killed and the two reunite again and she gives birth to twins. And this is the Disney-fied version. And I just thought that was a really interesting phallic image, but I'm not going to talk about it. So. <laughs> Too much. <laughs> not enough time. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about myth. The focus of, of my writing has largely been on the way contemporary film and television can be seen to incorporate mythic patterns into their narratives. Now, whether this is done consciously or unconsciously by their creators hasn't really been a concern of mine. We might even argue that these old stories with their capacity to stir emotional intensity, preach moral and ethical lessons of socialisation, amplify psychological patterns of behaviour and concentrate on a sense of transformation are the backbone of modern screen stories. Myths don't necessarily change at their core. Rather, the arts retell, reframe, ideologically update and interweave these sacred narratives. There are two big guns that we've... Uh, been talking about in the last two days in the world of deep psychology and fairy tales. Bruno Bettelheim, psychoanalysis, and Marie-Louise von Franz associated with analytical psychology, which is a legacy of Jung's. Both draw distinctions between myths and fairy tales. For Bettelheim, myths are tragic and miraculous, fairy tales more focused on the ordinary, casual, and full of promise. He says we get our wishes fulfilled in fairy tales. But myths present us with ideals, often challenging or overwhelming, with a superego personified as those impossible to please gods. For von Franz, myth and fairy tale are archetypal expressions of psychological processes that help us understand and balance our inner lives, tools for individuation. By archetype, she means unconscious patterns, common and recurring, able to direct behaviour and often personified in myth and fairy tales, or understood as motifs that shape narratives. So there's tricksters, eternal girls, eternal boys, puers and puellas, and shadow projections of ego discomfort. While myth is dependent on an awareness of culture, history and environment, von Franz argues that fairy tales are less origin-specific and more international, freeing them from cultural boundaries, and therefore able to reflect the basic patterns of the psyche more clearly. The characters are more or less black and white, and emotional reactions secondary to mechanical responses, lending them an impersonal, pure archetypal quality. So, if the relatively complex references embodied in myths need some degree of audience maturity and experience of the world, while the simple direct line to the unconscious contained in fairy tales is more user-friendly, then cinema, by its often concentrated, perhaps a covert use of both forms of storytelling, almost guarantees that audiences will tap into unconscious rumblings, whether they're aware of doing this or not. Let's have a look at uh, the archetypal, uh, from more from a mythic perspective. And one film I've chosen 
to look at is Polanski's repulsion. And that's a short clip we saw earlier of the guy, Colin, bashing through the door and Carol picking up a candlestick. And if you've seen the film, you'll know what she does with it. And if you haven't, you can probably imagine what she does with it. So I'll need to tell you a little bit about the plot and I'm going to have to spoil it. I'm sorry. The film plays with the idea of a woman mystified by her effect on men. Carol Ledeur, a 22-year-old Belgian beautician working in London, and she's played by Catherine Deneuve, as you can see there, is frightened and bewildered by male desire and associates maleness with dirt and contamination. Despite her woman-child distress at relentless male harassment, Carol's androphobia, her fear of men, and her misandry, her hatred of men, become symptoms of a steadily developing instability, and childhood sexual trauma is also hinted at, which, again, I won't have time to extrapolate on right now. Secondary male characters accentuate the sense of persecution through their invasive behaviour and interpret her blank refusals to submit to them as an affront to their masculinity. As a protective measure, she relies with childlike dependency on her sister-come-mother surrogate, Helene. And we're told early in the film that Helene's about to go on a holiday with her married lover, Michael. And once alone, Carol's psychological state deteriorates. And she kills two intrusive men who force their way into her upper-storey, lofty apartment where she looks out of windows and of nuns passing the street. Uh, the first one is Colin, who you saw. He's an infatuated would-be lover. He's sort of more like a stalker throughout the whole film and he follows her around and she blankly stares at him and he takes this as an invitation to stalk her even more. And then he bashes in the door saying, I, wonder, I was wondering what's wrong with you. <laughs> and... Uh, her lascivious uh, landlord here. And after the murders, she retreats into a catatonic state. I just have to tell I love the line that Colin gets killed on. <laughs> he comes in and he says, I just want to be with you all the time. And then she goes, oh, <laughs> Wrong thing to say to Carol. So we could argue that a number of mythic characters or deities play into and influence this film and then allow us to grapple with the various questions that it raises. So some of these might be Kore or Persephone, the raped eternal girl or Puella, who according to the Homeric hymn to Demeter is taken from her mother by her uncle Zeus, on her father's okay, I might add, and Zeus then rapes her and makes her his queen of the underworld. We also have Artemis because there's this warrior-like aspect to Carol as well as this, uh, this little virginal type part of her personality. So Artemis, virgin warrior and protector of wildlife, women and children, is a very influential thread. And uh, Artemis was also called She Who Cuts Up and the Spartans called her Lady of Wild Things uh, because she was so ruthless and vengeful and didn't like men. And as a child, for example, Callimachus tells us that she used her first silver arrow as this little kid, Zeus gave her his silver arrow, and she shot down a whole city of unjust men. What, what a woman. Now, Medusa, 
meaning a guardian or protectress, is kind of another influential influential influence here. So in Ovid's Metamorphosis, the young Medusa is imagined as a beautiful virgin raped by the ocean god Neptune in the Tower of Minerva. And enraged by the desecration of her shrine, what does Minerva do? She blames Medusa, of course. And so she turns her beautiful, and I believe it's black hair, back to the previous thing on hair, into wreathing snakes. And Medusa then can, or does, can't help it, turns men into stone when they look at her or they enter her sacred domain. Carol, too, literally and figuratively kills men who gaze upon her. With her long, free-flowing hair, Carol, like Medusa, becomes a combination of wounded beauty and vengeful murderers. So we can see the intertwining of myth throughout this story, and we could go deeper and deeper and deeper into the mythic influences. There's something really interesting in the uh, Kore myth when she's taken by Hades. He comes in, in various stories. He nearly always comes up through the ground, through cracks in the earth, and grabs her and pulls her down uh, with him. And there's one scene in Repulsion where she's... I showed it in the first clip. There are a lot of workers there, and they're leering at her as she work, walks past them on her way to work as a beautician. And in one scene she walks past the same space that those uh, workmen have their huts in. They're not there, but she stands staring at a large crack in the earth. And as she's just standing, staring at this crack in the earth, who comes along? Colin, the stalker. So we can see the intertwining of myth throughout this story. And as mad woman in the attic, Carol is to return to fairy tales a form of Rapunzel without a prince, the girl-woman who demands a room of her own. Repulsion is a curious film, and if you haven't seen it, I thoroughly recommend you, you see it. So it's as if Polanski wants to open up a discourse on sexual inequity and female privacy, while at the same time reducing women who don't acquiesce to being randomly hit upon as somehow aberrant or disturbed. Yet... This is the backhanded discourse of much forbidden female room cinema. So, we've seen the forbidden chamber as both internal and external. And if we look at the exorcist, we could talk about possession. But something to think about. Uh, fiercely guarded by female owners. The forbidden room can also be, though, a place of escape. The imagination memories, maybe even the psyche itself. And going back to the Bluebeard story, I often think that Bluebeard's room full of killed, um, mutilated women is an interesting metaphor for uh, the imagination of one's lover filled with ex-lovers. And you're wondering if you might be relegated to that space at some time. A memory. But in Pan's Labyrinth, um, which is set against Franco's Spain in 1944, we're magically taken um, into the imagination of young Ophelia. There we go. And there was a more extended clip that I showed you. She creates an alternate world to escape her new life with her sadistic fascist stepfather, 
when he attempts to make his way into this other realm, we know that it won't end well. Perhaps this special, individual, carefully nurtured and protected type of room is the most sacred and forbidden of spaces. It is a place where the dancing princesses wear holes in their shoes and don't get found out or stopped. This place is beyond socialisation. So what do these contemporary stories of forbidden rooms tell us? Are they feminist life lessons? Warnings to be wary of those who would distort or take a sense of oneself? For Jung, we are everyone and everything in the dream, that liminal compass to the self. The same might be true of fairy tales, myths and cinema into which these forms of knowledge now coalesce. In the bigger picture, we are the room, everything in it and everything beyond it. And time must be taken to feel each character and narrative strand. For in doing this, we're examining ourselves. As J.M. Barry wrote, every time a child says, I don't believe in fairies, there is a fairy somewhere that falls down dead. Thanks. Thank you so much. Um, as a sort of community service announcement, I suppose, I should mention that Repulsion is getting a cinema screening at a cinema that's not this one, it's a different one. But next weekend, if you look up in the papers, you can go to see Repulsion in a Melbourne cinema. Yeah. yeah. Oh, right. I don't think it's appropriate for me to say that either. I feel a bit, I can say it. Uh, the Aster. <laughs> Sunday week, it's going to be screening at the Aster. They're doing a Polanski season and, yeah, highly recommended. It's fantastic. It is just an amazing film, and I, f- I feel like I've got a far better understanding of it now than I did before. One thing I was thinking about with Bluebeard is the whole issue of temptation, and that's what the unnamed wife is punished for, is so Eve. It's so you know, Eve in the garden doing the exact thing she's told not to do because she's tempted. And I started thinking, well, what does this say about the, the Bluebeard myth with the wife playing the part of Eve and therefore Bluebeard being God... What the hell does that say about marriage and the patriarchy in, in popular culture? And then I was wondering, are there examples of revisionist bluebeard texts? Are there, does it, can we interpret this as a warning to women to not be impressed by flashy men who have you know, superficial things to attract, to attract them? Can we interpret this as a warning to women to not um, go with promiscuous men who, who fool around? and have a long history behind them. Yeah, I, I think we can, but that's not very exciting, is it? I mean, <laughs> sometimes those kind of men can be really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but for young girls, I imagine, and you think when these stories are written, mm. um, girls could marry at 12, I think. Um, Tudor times, they certainly could. They usually didn't. They could marry in their 20s, but they were allowed to marry at 12. So for, for young girls, and often marrying older men... I mean, we don't know how old Romeo is. We know how old Juliet is. She's 13 when yeah. her mother says, I was of your years when I was pregnant with you. So um, I think a warning for young girls is, uh, is probably the socialisation message of Bluebeard. Mm-hmm. Mm. Rebecca, you talked about Buffy. Can we sort of see... I mean, Buffy is a, is, a, is a great example of a more progressive text. Can we see? You did touch on the, some of the Buffy episodes. Can we see sort of 
what, what kind of empowering examples do we get from Buffy the Vampire Slayer? Uh, too many, really. Yeah, sorry. It's <laughs> too a, many it's to a go into. discussion um, zone, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, she's one of the more progressive, but then again, she does also have her origins in far earlier. Like Lady Mary was a very strong woman who would, you know, denounce this blue beard, and she wasn't going to put up with that. So a lot of the earlier heroines were like that too, and Buffy brings up that kind of very strong, independent woman who has her own flaws and her own weaknesses. She does fall in love with a couple of the serial killers, um, but she does deal with that and move on. Mm -hmm. And Catherine, in terms of the detective narrative, I was fascinated by how you were talking about the fact that we were all kind of in on it for example, through reading these texts. And I remembered um, one of my favourite moments in the television series Twin Peaks Mm -hmm. is after they work out who the murderer is, they actually conclude that the real answer to who murdered Laura Palmer is, we all did. And the conclusion (laughs) they get to is it was... There were so many messed up things about that town that encapsulated society as a whole. Mm -hmm. That, you know, she was punished for being a daughter and and a girlfriend. I like the idea of we all did. I always think of Murder on the Orient Express or whichever yeah. one it is where they all held the knife. But um, I think it's quite interesting the different uh, approaches crime writers take. I think someone like Patricia Cornwall is very conservative and very much a believer in the, the beast and the, and the idea of the born criminal and the born murderer and so on, that, that you cull these people. And one of the books, Temple Galt, is described as a very uh, wolf-like character and it is very... Striking, whereas someone like Barbara Vine, you know, Ruth Randell is more a social explorer. That these things can happen because people are um, disadvantaged uh, by society and so on. So you can get a whole range of ideas around what constitutes uh, constitutes this. So I suppose you know, it, it, there's a great, it's a vast church really of uh, ideas. And I think uh, one of the things I think is very interesting, though I find irritating, is with crime fiction on television that the impossible beauty of all these in the police in some of these days, you know, the, mm. <laughs> um, And, uh, you know, that sort of stuff kind of probably challenges my assumptions about narrative more than, than some of the storylines, to be honest. I always find it when they're doing forensics and their hair is like this over the crime yeah, scene. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Someone's got to do a comedy where they actually examine and spend weeks examining their yeah. own hair and debris. <laughs> <laughs> just have interest, do any of you have any thoughts on where the torture porn genre fits in? Films like Saw and Hostel, which is, event, which is effectively making the forbidden room the spectacle. I haven't seen those films, I won't go and see them. They're too scary. I've really put you on the spot with that. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> Be Cathy. No, I'm okay. <laughs> but there are, you know, the, the thing... Uh, I, find striking is a one book I looked at where the victim was an 86-year-old woman uh, who was sawn apart. I think it was actually a bit from the quote I gave, which, which you know, when you read it, it's pretty awful. She's a torso and she's this, that and the other, and she's very, very old. But the cover of the crime novel had this very nubile, dismembered body on it. And that was quite mm. interesting, I thought, that, the, you know, when you talk about a kind of porn, mm. that, you know, the cover couldn't have a, a, an 86-year-old sagging breasts and tummy or whatever, and, you know, the, the dismembered part was a, 
probably an 18-year-old. And that, that was quite interesting. And I've been to talks where the police have come and talked about this sort of thing, and they get quite irritated by crime fiction, a lot of police. They don't like it. Uh, they don't like the fact that in crime fiction often there's a, you know, um, beautiful lace underwear sort of stuffed in the mouth of the murdered woman or something dreadful but aesthetic and poetic for the, the narrative, but they go there and they say, no, it's not like that. It stinks. The woman looks dreadful. It's a horrible, horrible scene. And in a way, that's not necessarily captured. It's aestheticised in a way. And that, yeah, to me, yeah. is a kind of porn. It's the sort yep. of stuff that I suppose yeah, we're really talking about here, not just the, you know, the sort of slasher stuff you were mentioning. And there's always an aspect of the investigation that requires going to a strip club. Which yes. is no, it's remarkable how many lap dancers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how many TV and crime television and crime films involve the scene where they say, oh, "We have to speak to someone who hangs out at the strip club." <laughs> <laughs> what about the, the the idea of the lovable murderer from you know Freddy Krueger, who's a stand-up comedian, to you know Hannibal Lecter and, and Dexter? Is this sort of a sense that you know? There's a strong audience out there who actually really like Bluebeard and think what he does is kind of cool and fun. Is that sort of an endorsing? Oh, I think sex and death has always gone together in, in stories mm. and certainly in cinema. And there is something about a little death, you know, an orgasm and, yep. and blood and gore and excitement to it. Mm. Well, I think we should open this up to the audience. I'm sure there's a lot of people here who want to um, ask a question in this not-so-forbidden room, so please, please speak up. I think there are roving microphones, so the best thing I reckon is to put a hand up and one will find its way to you. Do we have any takers? You won't be punished. <laughs> um, thank you, first of all. That, those were just wonderful papers. Um, I have two questions, if I may, and I'm really sorry if I'm monopolising this. Uh, first is... Uh, for Terry specifically, um, you mentioned the Top Dancing Princesses, which is also a favourite of mine. I just wondered if you had anything to say on the fact that some variations of the stories have the foul boy volunteer to be taken permanently into the, the magical kingdom and drink the poison and remain there forever. And it's actually the act of, well, depending on which, which version you're reading, the younger or the older sister saying, actually, no, don't drink the poison. I would rather marry you and give up this kingdom and the second question just more generally um, I wonder if anyone had any thoughts on the really curious commonalities between two different types of stories with the bluebeard type and also the beast bridegroom type like um, Cupid and Psyche and East of the Sun and West of the Moon where there is also a very curious wife who on the urgings of perhaps evil sisters or wicked mothers um, observes her unobservable husband. But in the end, although she is punished for it for a while because she has to go through trials, she, has, she still is, by being curious, the person who sets her husband free from various curses that keep him out of human form. Mm. Oh, I didn't know that version of the Twelve Dancing Princesses. That's, I really just was talking about a memory, you know, from childhood that actually sticks with you, with the images of the... You know, them having a fantastic time and, and that was stopped. But that's interesting. I'll look that up now. Yeah. Um, actually, too, with that, a lot of times it actually depends on who's telling the tale and who's collecting it. There's a similar kind of tale from uh, Mary Catherine Dolnoy, for example, which is much more positive for the female role model. 
And um, just in, in general to your comment about the Beauty and the Beast, etc., these are just really good stories and you can see these motifs in a lot of storytelling, not just in fairy tale. But largely I think sometimes it's that curious thing, that paradox. Marina Warner talks about fairy tales having, um, a, a, a basically being very sneaky. So the general idea is that women being curious is bad, but fairy tales will sneak it in that actually it's a good thing. And so that's often how you get that ending. It will actually contradict the status quo of the time. I think all the paintings of Cupid and Psyche post-orgasm <laughs> make you realise why she wants to see what he looks like. Um, it's quite an interesting uh, mm. thing, that idea that the sort of sexualized, you know, relationship and uh, but this you know not meant to know of course you'd want to know and I think also the fact that in Pandora their hope is what remains and it's it sort of underpins all that doesn't it mm -hmm. and in Bettelheim in terms of the Beauty and the Beast story talks about the groom cycle in relation which I don't really agree with <laughs> in relation to um, beasts um, being horrific at first and then you have to uh, get to know them before they change into princesses. But again, the onus falls entirely on the child, on the woman. To, and uh, you know, then she sees that he's really, truly beautiful. But you know, what if he just is a bastard? <laughs> that's, you know, I don't think he considers that. Well, if they are, that's usually when they kill them. That's Bluebeard, <laughs> yeah. All right, there's a question up here. Uh, yeah, thanks for such an interesting um, panel. I really enjoyed it. Um, I have a question probably to all of the panel, which is just about an observation I made, being an avid watcher of Law and Order for many years. Um, I just noticed at some point, say in the mid-90s, the, um, all the murderers started being women. And so I just wondered how that sort of inflects on the, the Bluebeard um, being the murderer. So maybe now we have a sort of a... Or maybe it's a different fairy tale that that's related to, not the Bluebeard... Murder at all. I don't know if anyone else noticed that, but, or whether that's just, um, uh, it's whether I'm, I've noticed something that's actually there because I haven't actually counted the murders. <laughs> it, it just appeared as if um, most of the murders were were, were sort of re murderers were revealed to be women. And just one more thing, just, this was just something I noticed because I was reading the paper at lunchtime um, to Rebecca and. Uh, Julia Gillard, in her speech to uh, Congress, was <laughs> quoted as saying, be bold, be bold, <laughs> to the Americans. <laughs> oh, dear. Wow. <laughs> See what you've done? <laughs> this could be bad. <laughs> I'm going to have to think about that one, yeah. <laughs> Um, I actually can't say too much about Law and Order because I haven't actually seen it, but there are actually quite a lot of women in fairy tales who do kill. You've got the witches, of course, mm -hmm. um, but also uh, like Finette and um, one of the early Bazile's early Cinderellas. She's already done away with one stepmother before she starts working on the second. Mm -hmm. So even Cinderella could murder. <laughs> mm. I think jealousy. You know, Sarah's talk yesterday where you know she was talking about envy and jealousy and. You know. Um, you know, that, that notion that women kill because they're jealous or there's some, you know, drive there, the, you know, in fairy tales, the, the older resenting and, you know, 
being envious of the younger and more beautiful and so on. So you often get that narrative. And uh, I think that, you know, around the time of, what was that Glenn Close one where she cooked the rabbit? From the Fatal Attraction. <laughs> Fatal Attraction. You. you know, that idea of the, 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 mm. the, the woman perverted by, you know, rejection and so on is a very common theme in those um, notions of the woman as killer, I think. Mm. Did you find that it was more horrific, those, the episodes where the woman was the killer? Because the idea of sort of going against one's nature. Right. In terms of um, cinema, there, yeah, there is all the, the sort of spur and lover films, you know, uh, Play Misty for Me and is the other big one. But I, I'm actually struggling to think of sort of female serial killer films and the only one at the top of my brain is Monster, mm -hmm. yeah. which is such a different type of film. She's very as redeemed. Well. In yeah. And it's true. Isn't it? And it's based on a true story, yeah. Serial killer. And there's the rape revenge films as well, which you, which you touched on, which are very different. Yes, well, again. you know, I spit on your grave, she serially kills. But that's an interesting film because I show that to my fourth-year students and... Actually, when it was in England and they, the censors got hold of it, um, there are long tracks in the film where she's being raped. Those of you who have seen it will know. And the camera just holds on her face. And it's, it's really... I, I find it quite moving every time I watch it. Mm. And, and what the censors did was that's what they chopped out of the film. Is, and the, but some of the things that my students were saying was that while the first half of the rape on her was very realistic and, and quite frightening. Her killing of the men was in some way sort of more, more comical and unbelievable yeah, and right. uh, fantastic. Yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah, curious cultural double standards. Yeah. yeah. There's two questions over here. Oh, yes. One yeah, I was just making, wanted to make, make the point and just hear the panel's response in terms of, you know, with, with slasher films... Um, as soon as the woman loses her virginity, she's brutally murdered. The same, doesn't, the same rule doesn't seem to apply for the, ma the, the men in those films. Just wondering, is there some kind of... They're breaking some moral t taboo and they're being punished for it? That sort of began in the 80s with Halloween. Yeah, Halloween was the one I think where... The scream, the scream which screamed brilliantly, yeah. drew attention to. Yeah, yeah. Te brought, to, brought it to attention. Mm -hmm. No, no, I think that was a, a kind of trope that they, they played with in all those Scream films, that the, the pretty one uh, who was a virgin was always, you know, the last girl in the film that's yeah. been talked about before. And you, if you had sex, if you had big breasts, so you were out of it early on. Yeah. And curiously, at the same time, those slasher films were really popular was the rise of things like Porky's as well, which were just such celebrations of horny right. young men. <laughs> sawing, their, sawing their oats. Well, meanwhile, yeah, women who had sex in slasher films were getting killed off. Yes. Yeah. Um, hi. Um, I was wondering if you could elaborate a little more about the dark tale of Pan's Labyrinth um, and a bit about the forbidden rooms within the Pan's Labyrinth and Ophelia and Mercedes um, confronting the, the murderous uh, mm. Spanish... Um, dictator and that kind of relationship, how just someone as young as Ophelia could, you know, spike his drink 
and try to steal the baby? Like, just that, yeah, little bit about Pan's Labyrinth? Well, I, w- I put Pan's Labyrinth in there because, you know, there are a lot of fairies in, in that story and it's, it's one of my favourite films. It, it's so beautiful. And I just love the way she uses fantasy to escape the dreadful situation that she's in. And once he intrudes on that fantasy, and particularly when she has the uh, plant that she's imagined to be um, a baby that will cure her mother, and he finds it and he destroys it, I think that's the beginning of the end for him. And you sort of know know that something will happen to him because he's entered her very, very sacred domain. And even though she doesn't kill him... um, you know that he'll he'll be killed because of this huge trespass into her psyche. Yep, right here. Hi, this is um, a question for Cathy, really. Um, Joanna Burke, in her fantastic study of the history of rape, talks about something she calls the CSI effect, which is where many jurors and survey respondents... Um, when confronted with um, stories of rape, say, well, that can't be rape because, you know, she isn't acting in this certain way. Basically, um, they're looking for the clues that they find in um, those shows and those books, and when they don't see them in real life, um, they tend to think that the rape hasn't occurred. I was wondering if you would talk a bit more about the ethics of identifying so closely with the um, violent attacker. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I think rape victims in general have been well documented, aren't necessarily well served by the law, or you know that uh, it's uh, that that kind of questioning. I mean, we saw it, and it was mentioned yesterday. This business with the football down here and so on, and um, that young woman, where uh, you know they just think someone has to speak out here, and, uh, and, and there have been commentators. I think one of the things that's, uh, you know, crime fiction in general is highly stylized, and when the police talk about this stuff, and even just think simple things like a plastic, you know, in, in, you know, for the sake of the camera and the aesthetic for televised or filmed narratives, you know, they, they carry the clues around in a plastic bag, whereas in fact I think in real life they're brown paper bags, and, in, and they don't sweat and they do certain things that, you know, are much more sensible for the real-life use of, of uh, material or that, you know, scenes are, are not like they look that are beautifully set up and stylized and so on. And it, it, it means that the true violence and the true horror or the ethical um, moral responses of the police and so on are not quite, you know, they're never going to be uh, truly, truly there. And there are crime writers like Mo Hader, uh, who writes very violent crime, and Val McDermott as well, has, uh, when they've been criticised for writing appallingly, well, what are perceived by many people to be very violent crimes, they, they say we, we, we've got to break away from that stylization of it because we do a disservice to the victims of crime by doing that. Uh, so, you know, there has certainly been a lot of debate around the ethics of of the way in which people represent violence or stylise violence or turn away. And there are times where you have to turn away. Um, You know, one of the most touching things I read for people familiar with the Anita Cobby case in New South Mm -hmm. Wales. Um, Now, this is, you know, like a fairy tale. It's a very beautiful young woman who was was murdered by very animalistic young men who, um, as it turns out, were the victims themselves of childhood abuse and... uh, you know, sexual abuse and so on. So it was a kind of beast versus beauty in many, many ways, in the most terrible way. And one of the most touching things in that narrative, and my gosh, it played out over and over, the 
parents who were like desiccated cicadas, you know, every time you saw them on television, everything had gone from them. But um, one of the things that I think was the most touching in all of that was when the police found the body. The boys had cut her throat and left her in a field. And uh, the cattle, there were cattle in the field, and they had come to, found the body and licked, licked around her throat. And it has a kind of pastoral uh, humanity to it that I think is in many ways, it's true, and it is in many ways much, much more frightening and shocking, but also beautiful, if you like, than these kinds of awful things we do in crime novels. Uh, and the police were deeply touched by that. The police talk about that a lot. So, you know, when I hear police talk about crime scenes and they go, look, I'm so sick of these beautiful, scanty, scantily clad bodies, you know, artfully draped. So, yes, it does. It, it permeates through. Now, you could argue it's fiction and let's just have fun with it. But, yes, of course, it has other, um, you know, implications for a whole range of things. And what do you do? Do you stop writing it because, you know, it does that? Or do you, you, know, you need maybe to educate your juries that this is what's going to be happening in their heads? Uh, and that is why often police and crime writers work together. Gabrielle Lord's a good example of a relationship with a cop who's, I think, since retired, but where they work together to do seminars, not just for crime writers, but for police as well, and, you know, the general public. So people presumably on juries, who may be on juries. Hmm. Well, I think we can probably take one more question, then we will have to wrap this up. Are there any takers? Yep, this will be the last one here. Oh, no. Who, who's getting it? <laughs> can, can, can the people with the microphone race and we'll see who gets there first? I win. <laughs> I'll try and make it a good one. <laughs> yeah. Um, look, the, sh the short question is, um, what is it about beards? Um, <laughs> you know, and I, I guess sort of extending that a little bit, um, is, it, is, it, is the beard a, a literal description in the sense that it, it, it covers the face up and it hides the face? It... it, it it, it stops, you know, the, the, the realness being, being revealed uh, to the victim? Um, or is there perhaps a direct uh, cultural reference um, that, that you might, might be aware of when the beard first sort of became something to be afraid of or scared of or wary of? Oh, gosh, I'm a bit sketchy on this bit, but I think that there has been some research that does say that it, it's that Orientalism that was coming through, that that's where it came linked through, that um, men of the East would be wearing their beards. And it, at one point, it wasn't seen as being gentlemanlike to not be freshly shaven. So I think there is an element of that, definitely, coming through in certain of the retellings. But it is kind of ironic because around a lot of the times the tale was being told, men did commonly wear beards. But actually no one really knows where the blue beard came from. Mm. I can't see you. Do you have a beard? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I think it's very interesting because, you know, even I, I joke around with people. I, I reckon within the first five minutes of a film I can tell you who's going to die by the end of it. And in a lot of cinema, in Ameri American cinema, I... Um, uh, you know, men with beards were usually the giveaway in a lot of, you know, in westerns and a whole lot of movies at a certain point, maybe not so much now, but they used to be the villains. And it wasn't... I don't think Americans are big on beards, maybe hippies and stuff, but different cultures seem to have different uh, approaches to facial hair. But I think often in um, 
uh, filmic narratives, you know, the, 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 the dark or swarthy or bearded, you know, post-September the 11th, probably Arabic and dark and swarthy and so on, um, are, 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 are sort of tagged. And, um, you know, it, it just seems that this is, this is one of those sort of giveaways, often you get a sign that you often get through... Uh, through film, and I was thinking about Disney before because, given you know we're here with Disney, that um, we haven't quite mentioned him much. But I know in certain Disney cartoons, the villains uh, were often either yeah. bearded or you know those. The, I can't remember the characters, the Beagle Brothers or something. But they often had a heavy five o'clock shadow as well. So th this is often indicative of a racial casting or a group. And, and I look at all those pictures with Bluebeard and, uh, you know, many of them are very Oriental. The Oriental stuff came out large, largely in late Victorian times um, and often very Jewish as well, you know. Um, so the beard was that kind of othering that you're talking yeah. about. Mm. So it may be not so much now. I mean, now I think beards are move in slightly different ways perhaps but that in more contemporary times. But certainly it was something that, that was hooked to that kind of difference and othering that you got, particularly through late 19th century. I mm. think too how well kept it was. Because mm. sometimes the nice trim beard was okay, but yeah. big bushy. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> it might have been indicative beards. of mites <laughs> or lice or all kinds of... I mean, how did people groom in those days? In, in Tudor times and so on, mm. and, and uh, in uh, you know France of Perot, people were you know, weeing in the corners of Versailles and so on, there was not exactly a, um, a, 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 a beauty and a cleanliness about the place. And, a, and one of the great things about Tudor times, all those wonderful dances they did, like the Volta, where people would come close and get a good whiff of one another um, <laughs> before, you know, and often, you know, this kind of relationship was about whether the person was, you know, had venereal disease or whether they had mites or, you know, this is a really charming thing. But I think that's where beards <laughs> may have come into a bad, a bad time. And blue, you never know, that might have been a metaphor for something nasty. <laughs> we could do a hipster version called Blue Ironic Moustache. <laughs> <laughs> That was, a, that was a great question, actually, to bring, it, to bring this discussion full circle. Our look at The Forbidden Room from Bluebeard to CSI. A big, massive thank you to Rebecca, Kathy, and Terry for providing so much fascinating information and analysis.